butterfly in the sky. I can go twice as high. Hey, Scott. Yes, Adam. Do you like my Batman voice? We're doing Batman voices. I am. I have bronchitis. Here's a lozenge. Friends to know and ways to grow a reading Coming to you. <laughs> that was ridiculous. That's so stupid. Whatever. Coming to you almost live from the Reading Rainbow. This is the Unknown Studio. I'm Scott. I'm Adam. And we are your glorious, deep throated hosts. Literate hosts. Sure. Semi literate. I, was, I, I think full throated is what I was looking for. Yes. Uh, yes. Because of. The Batman impressions. You're you're not wrong. And uh, one thing to note about the Reading Rainbow is that it is currently under construction. That's right. We are in a construction zone right now, so you may hear drilling in the background. Or jackhammering. Yeah, or the moving of objects. Or band sawing. And if you hear screaming, it's just the construction. Yep. It's not us. No. And, uh, and joining us in this dangerous Reading Rainbow-esque construction zone is uh, a young man... Can I say that? Are you young? You're young. I'm a man. He's a, he is a man. Currently. A, ge- a gentle person uh, who many people might know as a, a writer uh, at Avenue Magazine and a variety of other publications. He's also a rapper. Yes? Yes, at the, at the moment. At the moment, he's a rapper. <laughs> and uh, the Edmonton Public Library's newest writer in residence. Uh, welcome to the show, Omar Moalam. Thank you for having me. Um, I... I uh, Never thought the day would come. Is that right? It's 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 been uh, it's been a while of uh, trying to get some unknown studio attention. Well, here you We've, are. Full disclosure, been intending to have you on the show for a while. Uh huh. Uh, it's just that finally. I wasn't big enough, but then the, <laughs> well, the writer we residence thing to, happened. We were waiting were like, for you to blow eh, up. Exactly. I think I think now's the time. We, yeah. we figured that People you peaked listening. at this point, so now's the oh, time. Oh, to... I figure I've peaked at this point. <laughs> up until now, you've only been sort of accomplished. The, I, I peaked on the first day of my writer in residence when an Edmonton Journal article came out in which I called books clutter. And then it was all downhill from there. <laughs> Did you get a negative reaction at all uh, to that, or like, did, was the library yeah, like? Uh, yeah, what? I got a pretty no, no. It wasn't. It wasn't so much the library. I mean, there were definitely librarians who were like, uh, <laughs> you know. Um, actually, it was. I think people who haven't been to a library in a while um, and don't don't like. Don't get me wrong. There are tons of books there, and I still go there for books. But I think that the. The future of books is not one on a shelf. And libraries know this, and they're preparing for this. And so I think if, if you've been to a library recently, you will know that the most, um, the most popular attraction isn't really the books. It is the computers. It's the meeting spaces. It's that kind of stuff. So I think it was a real shock to people to hear someone say something so provocative. And I was trying to be provocative, but not that provocative. You weren't you were trying to be inflammatory. Yeah, no, not at all. But some people did take it as uh, inflammatory. But that's, uh, it's a very fair statement. And it's it's a very good observation uh, that I think a lot of people don't realize how, um, 
want to use the word progressive, and I'm not certain it's the, the correct word, but how progressive libraries are, how uh, prepared they yes. are, how uh, innovative they are for, and, for the changes in really in, in the way that we process media, not just books, absolutely. but everything but and unless you go there you're never you're you never don't realize go. it absolutely not now there's 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 something to be said for li how libraries are coming to us now however there's something called overdrive which is something that libraries um <clears throat> offer and it is basically a free ebook store where you rent ebooks at uh, moments of a time uh, or audiobooks or or uh cds or whatever and so the library in the truest form is something that can be in your pocket on the bus in your living room at all times. So they're covering a lot of ground. Um, and then there's, there's also, uh, well, in addition to that, San, in San Antonio, they just created the first bookless library. Have you heard about this? No, how does that work exactly? You know, I'm not, I'm not really sure, but I, I think that the, the idea is that you can, you can, they probably have a lot more computers there, probably have a lot more event space there, a lot more table space, you know, to bring your material there. I haven't been there. I'm speculating, but my my guess is that it's like a free internet cafe. Okay. Yeah. Now, do you think that that the name library is wrong? Do you think we need to start calling these places something else, like the Hall of Knowledge? Well, you know what's clever? This uh, this bookless library calls itself a big bibliotech. Oh, I see what they did Very there. Very nice, right? Very nice. I, I could see that catching on. Yeah, maybe. The, the other thing about libraries and how they've been so progressive, and especially Edmonton's, and you know, I, I say this without any hyperbole, it has been the most progressive library in the country, not just in its push for digital media and uh, digital literacy, which is basically putting, uh, knowing how to use Facebook and YouTube on the same level as knowing how to read and making people understand that that has the same level of importance in this day and age, but also in its outreach. The Stanley Milner Library is the first and only in Canada to have an outreach office. So there are two outreach workers. They're hiring a third one just for youth. They are not there to help people with their homework. They're there to help people with their social problems. So homeless people, mentally ill people. Um, there's a woman that I see there every day with her baby who's just killing time. I, I, I haven't talked to her. I'm speculating, but I think that her husband works. And she just wants to be around people, and she's there every single day, really? from like nine to four o'clock, being there, being around people. That's all. That's all it is for her, and for her to have an office where, if she needs bus tickets, she can go get a bus ticket. If she needs some help with, uh, I don't know, if she needs, if she's looking for a place where she can get some clean clothes for a job interview, or if a man was looking for the same thing the outreach center can can help you out. So that is what the that is what libraries today have become. So the library is almost like the um it's almost like the community league model in a way. Um but you don't so to to take advantage of these outreach programs I'm assuming you don't have to have a library card. That would be kind of No, not that at would all. Make it, so it's no, 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 no. it is that they are the community hubs. They are. And and they are helping ways and people that helping people with ways in ways that I never imagined before. It's been such, I've only been there for three weeks and it's been such a shocker. Talking with librarians about what people are looking for is amazing. Um, I met this one woman, Gail Walker. She's a librarian at Lois Hole. She helped a man get his, uh, get his daughter back from Nigeria. 
this man is from Nigeria. His, his daughter was there. He wanted to bring her home, having a hard time with it. Went to Canada Place. They gave him papers, didn't tell him what to do with them. He went to the library with these papers and said, I don't know, I can't read. Oh, geez, no kidding. So this librarian worked with this man for months throughout the process, helped him get his daughter back from Nigeria. Wow. And, you know, I asked her, like, you know, are, are you trained to do this? And, like, did anyone teach you this? And she said, no, I had to figure it out. But she said, if I were to send him back to Canada Place, and by the way, Canada Place sends people to the library all the time now. What the hell? Yeah. You'd think that, that the place where the government agencies live would be the place where you're supposed to be able to sort out your shit. But, but her feeling was, if I didn't help this guy out, that's bad customer service. Holy crap. Huh. That's, that's an interesting way to look at it. I, I want to meet a barista like that. <laughs> I, I you really, want a barista to help you get your daughter back from Nigeria? I really feel like... Uh, you want to bring your bag of beans and be like, can you grind this for me? Yeah, yeah. Can you explain to me how simple machines work, barista? Because you probably have an education in science. <laughs> You're just biding yeah. your time. So you've been at this for three weeks, and it's been a huge eye-opener for you. Just, just hanging out in the library has, has been part of that process. Yep. And so you've got an office at the Stanley Milner branch, is that correct? That's correct. And what, do you, what have you been spending your time doing other than, you know, observing and seeing what's going on at the library? Well, I mean, the last three weeks have been spent just uh, figuring out what my plan is for the year, um, how much I can do mm -hmm. as well, because it's a part-time job and, and there's definitely enough uh, people out there who want to use you in some way, either for mentorship or in a community event or to do a talk on something that it could be a full-time job if you were to let it become one. So... In my time, I've, I've uh, read a few manuscripts from people, given them feedback. People come into my office just to talk shop. Um, you know, they have uh, an aspiration to get into some magazines or to start an online magazine, as one woman came to talk to me about. Uh, some people are just wondering how they can maybe diversify their, their writing portfolio. We just, we just talk shop. Um, and then I've been putting together a schedule of talks about two workshops or seminars or both a month for the next 12 months, 11 months. And I'll be gathering some course material and doing that stuff. So it's everything from, uh, everything from talks on screenwriting to uh, NaNoWriMo, which is the novel writing uh, uh, challenge month. Yeah. yeah. To workshops with youth on, uh, on how to write rap music and perform rap music. Very cool. Workshops with youth on oral story storytelling. Uh, a large focus of my, there are basically three main focuses of my residency. One's gonna be uh, youth and at-risk youth. Um, digital literacy and, and, uh, and just sort of moving into the next generation of uh, publishing. Uh, as well as magazines, because magazines are my passion. So I'm just going to evangelize about them all year. Cool. And, and you're given the freedom to sort of sort out what all of this is going to look like over the next year. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, more or less. I mean, there's a good team of uh, librarians and managers and assistants there who, who help me understand who their, who their patrons are. Uh, what has worked in the past and what hasn't, and we sort of sculpt it from there. So right now we're in the process of sculpting, and I think by the end of the month we'll have <clears throat> the full 12-month uh, series. And then you can add sculptor to your uh, resume. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. That's really cool. Uh, is there anything 
Uh, out of those sort of three topic areas that you're really looking forward to, when you came in uh, to the studio today, you were talking about having just delivered a workshop on digital tools for writers. Mm -hmm. So digital is a big part of what you talk about. Yeah, I, mean, I think digital is one of those buzzwords that we use so much that we th we think we think we've got it all, but we don't. It's just like so broad. It's you know at this point, it's 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 like saying book. <laughs> and it, but like what kind of book and how many different ways can you consume a book and use a book and write a book and read a book and so I, yeah I mean I was just doing this talk on digital tools for writers and I've done the talk before it's usually about um, recording devices software for outlining your stories working in the cloud what the best uh, word processors are for tablets, that sort of stuff. Um, why you might want to use Google Drive versus Dropbox. Uh, you know, I was asked to do some stuff on social media. And I very quickly realized just like how many creative professionals are not actually convinced. They're not convinced that that this is the future of, of marketing. Or, or they just feel like they can't understand it. Really? Um, we spent half an hour on Twitter. And I, I, I was hoping I was just going to talk about how to use Twitter correctly to promote your stuff and market your stuff. But I quickly realized we need to actually go a lot deeper here. We need to talk about hashtags, how different people use that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, we, we need to talk about, I, I don't know, all sorts of things. How you build, uh, how you, how people ask me, how much time should you give to Twitter? I said, I said, you know, how often do you text message? Because that's essentially what it is. Yeah. You know, yeah. you're just kind of text messaging with, with a with a giant world, and it's it's going to be more than your text messaging, and and so you can't just do it once a day. You can't just like put out an announcement and say, hey, my book's on sale. Well, that, that and expect tweet, people are going to see it. That's going to live for 20 minutes before it gets swamped by well, everything else. Well, have no followers. Well, and that's it's not even going to last 20 seconds. Well, that's why that's why hashtags can be very important. Yeah. Well, so that's, that's interesting. I can't believe that people still think that after all this time, since you know Facebook sort of came around in 2005, 2006, that these are these tools are still maybe a fad. Yeah. Yeah. That's and that's the perfect word, and I've heard it recently. Really? Where it's just like, ah, it's just a thing. It'll go away. And it's like, ah, it's been a thing for like 10 years now. No Maybe question. it's not going anywhere. It'll, it'll evolve. Well, you know, it'll change. Yeah, it'll evolve and change. Oh, yeah. it's, it's, Twitter and Facebook might not be no, the I don't, tools we use exactly. in the future, hey, but something similar. MySpace is back. That's all I have <laughs> I hear, to say. Yeah, yeah, I hear. Yeah, that's how Justin Timberlake decided to launch his new album. With the social network that he purchased. <laughs> so, and I actually logged on there the other day, filled out a profile. I haven't really done anything with it because it is still extremely music focused, which is fine. There's just mm -hmm. other tools that I mm -hmm. use for that sort of thing. But it looks beautiful. Yeah. And it's super simple. Yeah. Like, I think, um, we're getting a little off topic here, but no, I just no, want to say. Let's go with this. I feel like the Facebook interface has become uh jumbled and cluttered and it's really busy and I, I wonder if there's not going to be some or there will be some kind of social network that's going to just simplify everything. It's a very interesting thing that's happening right now where MySpace <clears throat> is becoming what Facebook was when Facebook eviscerated MySpace. That's right. The clean, simple look. If there's anything to learn from Apple, it's that you want to remove every single unnecessary button, right? And Facebook... 
I, I still, you know, I still love Facebook. I still feel like I, I need it to survive as a, as a human being in this day and age. <laughs> you do. Um, but it, it, it has become so robust that I'm, uh, I would actually rather be on Twitter, where it's one box for my thoughts, one page for everyone else's thoughts, and one page for where those things intersect. Yeah. And despite... Uh, the changes that have happened to Twitter since it launched, it still is a fairly simple interface. Extremely. And I think that that elegance is something that uh, has been a design philosophy for mm -hmm. them as well, is they want to keep it simple. Sure. I think if you look at how these things gain popularity, there was MySpace, we thought that's as good as it gets. Facebook came along and said it could be much simpler than this. We went to that. Then Twitter came out and said it can be even more simpler. Mm -hmm. And then we, we, we went to that. And well, I don't know about you guys, but I spend probably four times more uh, time on Twitter than I do on Facebook now. So do I. I, I I'm one of those people who actually reads, I try to read everything in my feed that Whoa. looks like it might be interesting. Oh, okay. Like, sure. so, so I'll, but I'll skim the thing. I'll, I, I don't just, I don't just log in, update, you know, look at the most, five most re recent things and go on my way. I do try to Yeah, go, sure. I do like, that too. Which I think is unusual. I don't think most people do that. I would be surprised if most people I, I've learned, I've trained my eye to look for stuff of interest. The, the thing that I hear most from uh, these writers at these workshops is like, how do you have time to go through 900, because I follow 900 people, 900 people's <clears throat> thoughts and, and tweets in your feed. I say, you don't. Like, that's physically impossible. Yeah. You just, you just look for words and topics and people who have built a credibility with you uh, that, that have somehow rewarded your interest and so that you, you're more inclined to give, give what they have to say attention. Yeah. And certain words pop out and certain topics pop out and that's how you do it. But it's just like ripping through a newspaper very quickly. Yeah. yeah. It's the new speed and, reading. Well, and, yeah. and it is a skill that you develop. Absolutely. Yeah. And like when I first signed on to Twitter many years ago now, um, I was talked into it by Brittany LeBlanc who's been one of the You know, Twitter I was talked into it yeah. by this guy right here. There you go. Yeah. Um, but she, she had hundreds of people that she was following, and I could not conceive mm -hmm. of how she could follow 500 people at the time. I, I, I don't recall how many she had at the time. It's exponentially larger now. Uh, but now I personally follow almost 2,000 people, and that's just something I can do easily, and I can pick out the stuff that I'm interested in, and I can jumble around who I'm paying attention to at any given time, and it's just a skill I've developed. It's really amazing that, that I mean, I follow about the same number of people as you do, Scott, and you learn who's worth drilling yeah. down into when, they, yeah. when they're publishing something. You learn to ignore certain people. You, you figure out who to unfollow pretty quickly, too, I think. And, um, it is, but it is a different kind of reading. And you know what? I was thinking about this the other day, that I think that people take for granted how important their the avatars they use are because they become so recognizable to the mm -hmm. people who follow them. When I change my avatar, it's like a fucking uproar. People lose their minds. <laughs> oh my God, I didn't know it was you. You look like, your avatar looked like this person because it's shorthand for everybody. Yeah. So you have to be really careful about that kind of shit. You know, I, uh, I walked into a house party last night and right in the living room, I saw uh, three avatars. I saw Mr. Dad, uh, <laughs> which is I think Brodeep, uh, Hillary Dara, yeah, and uh, her partner Gramps. 
no, oh, no. Yeah. He, he uses a different, actually. He, he uses a fake avatar, but I learned that it was, it was him yeah, later on. Yeah, Jeff, Hillary, and uh, Taz. Amazing. As soon as I saw... Uh, as, soon as, I, as soon as I saw Taz, I knew immediately that that was Mr. Dad because really? it just fit the brand that he had put forward. Like that was his face. That was his, those were his expressions. And I knew right away that that was the guy. And having never met him before? Having never met him in my life. Wow. Yeah, it's so funny. And you know what? I, I mean, at the risk of sounding like a jerk, I uh, ignored the friends I showed up with <laughs> at that party and spent the entire night with these dudes who were as funny as they are on Facebook. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. That's awesome. So it, it's... Uh, or sorry, on Facebook. On, on Twitter. Twitter. Well, yo. Um, we all knew what you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, Since you... Since I convinced you to start using Twitter, but, yeah. but gen more generally speaking, since you started using social media, do you feel like it's... Um, that it's opened certain doors for you or shut some? Uh, this is a... Yeah, this is a good conversation. Definitely opened more doors than it has shut. Yeah. Um, it's definitely opened more doors. I've gotten, I mean, I've gotten queries for, for work, you know, on Twitter. Like people IM me to be like, hey, would you be able to do an assignment for me? Seriously? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, I'll tell you that like the, I'll never know for sure unless I, unless I ask this editor, but, um, there's a, there's, there's a, she, she used to work at the Globe and Mail. Her name is Shelley Youngblood. She's uh, just one of the best editors that I've ever worked with as a writer. Mm -hmm. um, though I hadn't at the time. And, and uh, after, during the debates, the provincial debates, I put out a tweet that got around, went kind of trending across Canada. It was, do you remember we were talking about, Dan they were talking about Danny Bucks. Wasn't it truck? Did that somebody yeah, do so truck Yeah, Danielle Smith said, uh, I think the people of Alberta are smart enough uh, or, or, or are mature enough not to waste their own money. Something to that effect. Yeah. Won't waste their own money. Oh, and this was about uh, giving people back tax dollars. Yeah, yeah, the Danny Bucks. Yeah, right, right. right. Okay. And so I had tweeted something that actually was a combo of what of a joke I set up and then what Max Fawcett from Alberta Venture, who was at my table uh, and a friend of mine, had come up with the punchline. It wasn't, it wasn't my, really my joke. And I tweeted, uh, Danielle Smith doesn't think Albertans will waste their own money. Has she ever seen truck nuts? So it went viral immediately. <laughs> I got like 100 followers. It's the only time. I'm a one tweet wonder. It, never, it will never happen again. Don't say um, that, man. You never know. There's another, there's a municipal election coming Yeah, that's up. right. It's true. Um, so so the, the next day, this editor, uh, who, who was familiar with my work, and, and liked it, but never, I guess, maybe she just needed a reminder that I was there or something. And I don't even know for sure if this is it, but I, I just think it was a little coincidental that the day after I had like my, my little spotlight on Twitter, she got in touch with me and said, we need to work together. Cool. And, and then I got my first piece in the Globe and Mail after that. Holy shit. That's so, awesome. Whenever we have a guest on our show with, uh, shall we say, musical leanings, we usually like to showcase some of their talent with uh, a clip or some music from one of their albums. Omar is no different, strangely enough, despite the fact that he's an author. He has an album called Edmontosaurus, which is available. And uh, here is one of the tracks from that album called Yeg Summer. <laughs>
Crash the party like Fred Phelps God hates likes Girls in mini skirts Flirting on the app whenever they scream Still I wouldn't rather be anywhere else Four months a year we turn it inside out Eight months a year we don't leave the house Turn white like the rabbit's clothes mate and bounce Open. We find a bliss like with Deepak Chopra and so hot on the black dog rooftop The app looks like San Fran from up here Don't drop your beer, you'll get fish Krakowski Then we cross bridges like the Big Lebowski Over the river runs through our psyche with joggers Daily jumpers, nightly Start. We park our cars for some public art Local boards and walk on farmers markets Green onion cakes, a moving target But they turn the square into a public space Christian pamphlets, to wipe off faces By the grace of the summer, amen Written in March with my heart aching Class concludes, we know the winter blues resume soon Looming, but until then we're blooming Never let her ruin our mood so soon So let the tip of your glasses kiss There's still lots of time to get smashed to bits Hearted people with a heart of hearts then Fresh snow sends us back to our cars and apartments business plan, but you're not sure where to go from there? Do you want to increase sales? Get noticed? Wow your audience? Make your mom proud? Well, we've got you covered. We're connected, we're creative, and we're innovative. We are strategy first. If you've got a great product or service and you want the whole world to take notice, call Focus Communications. Let's start a conversation. Go to focuscom.ca. Well, the new year has come and gone, and January is almost over, and one has to wonder, where is Story Slam? Well, turns out it's right where it's always been, and as usual, we were there to take in the creative juices and churn out a delightful segment for you, our listeners. Our first story today is an amusing tale from Devin Bruce. I was born on the 9th of July in the year 1933 to Daniel and Mary O'Leary, nee Thomas. I don't know much about how my parents met and fell in love with each other because our parents had a very simple rule that no one in the family would talk about their lives before we were born, apparently because my mother felt that if we heard tales of their wayward youth, we would have lost all respect for them and would have become unruly. Mama grew up with her two sisters in Albany, and Grandma Thomas had to raise her three girls on her own after Grandpa Thomas died in a factory fire. According to my Aunt Gertrude, the day after the funeral, Grandma Thomas went right back to work at that exact same factory because she needed to put food on the table for her little girls, and also because she was a crazy hard ass and that place was not going to ruin her life. 
She worked there until she lost two fingers on her left hand in an accident. And then she made plenty of work for the single factory workers she'd made friends with, taking in their laundry and mending their clothes and other odd jobs like that. I took, I, I look back at this strong, brassy lady and I think how lucky my mama was to have a woman like that taking care of her. And unfortunately, she learned some of the wrong lessons from her life. Namely, that hard work and determination lead to pain, injury, and death. And that security meant making sure that you were going to land a rich, important man. And if you're going to catch and keep a hold of that man, you had always best look and act your best. That single-minded obsession with climbing up the social register kept her in good stead when she somehow collided with my daddy. And as he could certainly have done much worse, they got married and settled down in a house a couple miles away from granddaddy's estate and got busy producing. Children and chickens to start, but soon enough my daddy had convinced granddaddy that he needed to diversify. I was the first boy in a family with three girls, and my arrival was celebrated by both my mama and my daddy's family, but for different reasons. My daddy's family was happy to see a boy that could take over the business. My mama's family was happy because giving birth to a boy meant that she was far less likely to be unceremoniously dumped and divorced by my father, who had been getting pressure from his father to get rid of his bride unless she, started pumping, unless she stopped pumping out useless daughters. Useless being my granddaddy's word something daddy tried not to repeat in front of my sisters, but could not prevent my mother from overhearing. Needless to say, this caused some tension in the household, tension that it was hoped I would smooth over, because the birth of a child always leads to a reduction in stress and tension, as anyone who's never had children would tell you. <laughs> when I was born, my granddaddy threw a great party, and although the details of that party have certainly grown and transformed themselves into legends over the years, three things happened that are indisputable. First, it was on the night of this party that my Uncle James lost his left eye. Secondly, the oversized puddle out back of our house that people took to calling O'Leary Pond, more out of respect for my family than for the size of the body of water itself, caught on fire and burned for three hours before the party guests and the fire department, many of whom were one and the same, managed to put it out. Thirdly, and in between these two events, I received my given name, Proper James Michael O'Leary. The only one of those three that I think I have the facts straight about is my name. The way that I got my name is that my granddaddy had gotten blind stinking drunk on a combination of champagne and moonshine and was making a speech to anyone who would listen, which would be anyone within earshot because you did not ignore my granddaddy if you know what was good for you, about how finally that low-born woman who had trapped his son in the bonds of wedlock had given him a son after over 10 years and three plain and frail little girls. This was in front of my sisters, my mother, my mother's parents, and my daddy, not to mention about half the town. And the longer he talked, the redder my mama's face got, the louder my sisters began crying, and the more obvious my daddy's silence grew. My granddaddy talked about how strong I was going to grow, and how rich I was going to make the family, and how proud of me he was going to be when I finally came into my own, about how now there was finally a proper O'Leary man in this new generation. When granddaddy raised his glass and was about to make it what would have certainly been a toast for the ages, my daddy raised his voice to cut him off. He told the crowd that he was certain that his new son was going to be a success in whatever he put his mind to and that he certainly wouldn't do anything to sully the O'Leary name, like cheating the people that he was supposed to be protecting out of thousands of dollars a year, or bribing police officers to keep his name out of a murder trial, or disrespecting his son in front of his family. <laughs> and my father went on, apparently speaking of other deeds of hideous and unspeakable awfulness in such general terms that it all seemed very friendly, unless you knew anything about my granddaddy, in which case it was like someone just blew the doors off the house. And now it was my granddaddy's turn to grow red and have tears well up in his eyes and be deathly silent as my daddy said he was sure that I would grow to be a proper O'Leary indeed. And he raised his glass and asked the assembled crowd to drink a toast to me. It was the finest thing he ever did. 
not heaping praise on me, understand. I was not yet a day old and was asleep in my nursery upstairs, likely laying in a heap of my own filth. But the way he stood up for my mother and the girls in the face of the man who terrified him more than any other, for the first time most of them could remember. It gave me a name and a reason for being and a mantle that I've tried very hard to earn. And it made my sisters love me. And that may be the best thing my daddy ever did for me. And as always, we like to highlight the winner of the night. And on this occasion, the winning story came from Rick Snyder with a tale about being Santa Claus. You've heard always a bridesmaid, never a bride. How about always a helper, never a Santa? I always thought I would be a terrific Santa Claus. I'm good with kids. I have three of my own. I have previous experience being a child, and I still act like a child. The idea of playing such a larger-than-life character appeals to my inner actor. There's not a big script with a lot of lines to learn. It's mostly ad-lib with a few ho-ho-hos thrown in here and there. And you gotta admit, there's a pretty cool costume that goes with the gig. My first experience as a Santa's helper was in the third grade when I was chosen to play Pit Noir, or Black Peter. Now in Holland, Black Peter accompanies Sinterklaas on his rounds, awarding, rewarding all the good kids, but Peter's main role is to gather up the bad kids and stuff them into a burlap sack so they can be taken away for a daily birching. That's, that's where they beat you with a bunch of birch sticks. Now, I suggested that the role might be a little more realistic if I actually stuffed a couple of kids into the sack. And I suggested a few names of some classmates who I thought could benefit from a couple of good whacks with a stick. Those ideas were vetoed. In the eighth grade, I was the star of Binky the Elf Saves Christmas. I wanted to play Santa, but Binky was the lead role. But seriously, Binky? Now why is it the elves in the Lords of the Ring have cool names like Legolas and Galadriel? Santa's elves have names like Binky and Sparkles. I bet Sparkles never chopped off an ogre's head with a battle axe. But I digress. A few times in my adult life, I've been a Santa's helper, but I do not dress up as an elf. Did it once, saved Christmas, that was enough. I don't have any issues with myself being vertically challenged, and I don't have any problem with elves in general. I just don't want to be one. When I worked for a courier company on Christmas Eve day, my driver dressed in a full Santa suit. I got into the spirit by putting on a set of reindeer antlers and my red rubber clown nose, and voila, instant Rudolph. So I can honestly tell my grandkids that one Christmas Eve, I helped Santa Claus deliver parcels. And I have photos to prove it. Last year, my wife's club needed a last-minute replacement Santa. Now, I'd never told her about my secret desire, so I played it kind of cool. Well, I guess if you're really stuck, I could give it a try. <laughs> and in my head, I'm thinking, yes! Well, I told her I should try on the suit. And she said, well, what's to try on? It's one size fits all. I wasn't going to argue, I was going to play Santa. I had to dress in the janitor's closet because some kid might walk into the washroom. It was cramped and poorly lit and there was no mirror for me to see what I was doing. The one-size-fits-all suit was huge, just kind of hung off my shoulders. The hat, or the Santa wig was missing, but the hat was okay. It was going to cover my entire hair and something extra because it looked like it was made to fit a beach ball. But I managed to get it on there and set so it wasn't falling over my face. Unfortunately, the foam pillow I had was determined to keep its shape. So I had this kind of a rectangular belly. <laughs> Looked like I was about to give birth to a box. 
Well, I trapped the corners with my arms and kind of held them in tight at my sides, and that worked, except that Santa could only wave from the elbows when he walked. I thought I was doing reasonably well with the kids until one little girl said, you say ho, ho, ho way too much. Soon another problem developed. The elastics looped over my ears, started slipping and loosening. I could feel the beard falling down. So I had to kind of hunch up my shoulders and squinch down my chin so that the fake belly would support the beard. <laughs> Later, my wife was looking at some photos of the event. She said, why are you all hunched over the kids like that? That is one creepy looking Santa Claus. And she was right. I looked exactly like the kind of guy who goes, hey, little girl, Santa's got some candy in his pockets, but you have to get it yourself. Ho, ho, ho. Well, this year, she's already sending out casting calls, trying to find somebody, not me, to play Santa Claus. I still kind of like to be part of the action, though. Maybe I'll see if she needs an elf. Thanks to Devin, Rick, and everyone who turned out to participate in the January Story Slam. Story Slam goes every third Wednesday of the month at 7 o'clock at the Haven Social Club. That's 15120 Stony Plain Road. It's free, so come on down and listen to the stories or get up on stage and read one of your own. Maybe we'll see you there February 20th. Are you looking for current, relevant, highly specialized digital media instruction? You need to seek out The Guru. Guru Digital Arts College offers intense six-month programs that simulate real-world projects. You'll work in small classes in a casual professional environment and meet industry pros who offer a mentor-style approach to learning. Some institutions make the same claim, but with Guru, you'll develop the confidence to get out and become a part of the digital media community. Come visit us anytime. Check out a class, talk with our instructors, and be part of the Guru experience. For more information, email info at gurudigitalarts.com or call 1-877-429-4878. We should take a moment yes. to thank some illustrious institutions yes. who offer us money, to money. mention their name. Money, yes. <laughs> they, they have literally bought us. That's right. We Be- are sellouts. Because that's how advertising works. Scott. Essentially, yes. Yes. Um, um, so we'd like to thank the wonderful people at Focus Communications, a delightful public relations and promotions firm here in Edmonton. Run by the delightful humans. Yes, that is the name of their forthcoming sitcom as well. Um, so thank you so much to Dean, uh, to Sue, and to the entire staff over at Focus for the uh, support they give us. And uh, though they are noisy on this particular occasion... That is true. They are nonetheless the Hogwarts of digital media in Edmonton. You're referring, of course, to Guru Digital Arts College. That is correct. They, uh, they sponsor us as well, and they, uh, they allow us to use their ever-changing classroom space to record this show. It is uh, shifting. There are walls that weren't there before, staircases that have moved around. Uh, I'm sure those pictures are moving. It is, it is not unlike the, the actual Hogwarts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, except we were shouted at it by a ghost earlier. <laughs> I think that was just Owen Breyer. Oh yeah, that might have been him. Who is the the Dumbledore esque headmaster of uh, of Guru? That's right. And he is eccentric and delightful. 
Yeah, and if you want to find out all the things that Guru teaches, you should check out gurudigitalarts.com, and we thank them immensely for their continued support. Now, here's another story. Uh, with I, I uh, used to have a blog on WordPress, um, and I had a I, I had a list of ironic, terrible things you can do on a first date or in a relationship with a woman. And it was supposed to be satirizing bros. Okay. And it was called Manly Tips for Manly Men. I think I've read that. <laughs> I think I remember reading that. So uh, it, was, it was satirically misogynistic. Okay. I got an assignment with a national magazine <clears throat> to do a long form story that paid, uh, okay, not as much as I want to. But it, it, at the time of my career, it was, it was a very exciting opportunity. And the editor, before I'd even started, after he, he handed me the assignment, he checked out my blog, he found this, and then he got back to me, and he said, you know what, we're not gonna, we can't assign this to you because of this blog, because of what you said, your views are misogynistic, and we don't want to be associated with a writer uh, who is, you know, who is misogynistic. And, if, and you know, he said, from, from my vantage point, uh, we, you know, we have an audience that depends on credible writers and journalists. And if I were you, I would delete that. Really? Yeah. So what did you do? Did you, is it still around? It is. Yeah. Uh, were you, you must have been, I would have been pissed about that. Were you a little bit upset about you know, that? No, I wasn't because I, like I said, they weren't paying me as much as I, I believed I deserved. <laughs> sure. So once I accepted the assignment, I was feeling a little bit of guilt mm. about uh, underselling myself about by about half of what I thought it was worth. So I was actually, I was embarrassed, but I was happy I'd found a way out. No shit. And I, I thanked him. I was, I, I thanked him not flippantly. I just honestly thanked him. And then um, I, I revisited that. I made sure to take out anything that was that could be misinterpreted as hateful, and I worked the funny. I did what I should have done in the beginning, which was edited it. Yeah. So this was something you just sort of it wrote was an published. unedited piece of crap. Yeah. Yeah. And so I went in there and I reworked the jokes, <laughs> made them like unmistakably satirical, and then I added one more to the list, and that was uh, manly tip number thirteen. <laughs> Uh, don't make manly tips. Don't give manly tips. You will lose a job in the future for it. <laughs> yeah, and it's still up there. Satire so. is, um, it's an art form. It's it, you have to be so precise well, in a and way. Satire is also difficult. Yes, if you're not a an established satirist, uh, because. The first one you put up, uh. because people don't have the context, yeah. don't know that you are making fun, um, they can't tell your tone, mm -hmm. they can't tell your intent just by reading, unless you're very good and very obvious. Um, and there's going to be a significant portion of the people who read it who are going to go, this person is messed up, because they're going mm -hmm. to take it literally. Yeah. And it's not meant that way. So it's it's easier once you've got uh, a reputation as a satirist. Yeah. Once you once you are an established Stephen Colbert, yeah. it's easier to do that than the first time you are Stephen Colbert. 
do, do you find that, I mean, uh, how much how much of that sort of thing have you written before? S- satirical pieces, tongue in cheek. No, not not many. Yeah. And that I mean that probably it had nothing to do with my brand. The article that I was going to write was a very serious uh, policy piece um, and and profile of of uh, of a man who who has sort of a delible mark in is I'm guessing delible is the opposite of indelible. I would assume. <laughs> In Canada, and there there was no room for humor in the story, so why would a satirist pitch it? Well, that's a good question. I'm not a satirist. I mean, my I I there is a huge disconnect between the work that I do, which is mostly serious, and uh, the voice that I have in my writing, which is maybe a little bit light, from the person I am, who can be very sarcastic and very cynical. Mm-hmm. But. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, that's my problem. It's sort of like um, like when Jim Carrey tried to do a few serious movies. You, you have to, you, you have to sort or of Adam keep... Or Adam Sandler. Do you yeah. remember Punch how many people Love? didn't get Punch Drunk Love? Yes, because they were expecting him to be balls out stupid. Totally. Yeah. Right? And, you know, the, the premise of it could have been an Adam Sandler movie. Yeah. You know, uh, a loser guy with seven sisters who's never been on a date, probably a virgin, starts collecting pudding cups to go to Hawaii and, and wants to take this, this cute girl with him, but doesn't have the confidence to do it. Oh, but it's played straight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wah, wah. And that, by the way, is one of my favorite all-time movies. Is that right? I would like to say. Oh, top 10 list, easily. We've covered off one of the Fast 15 questions then. Oh. Shit. Think of, think of another one. <laughs> another movie on my list? <laughs> yes, but don't tell us. All right. Well, he said that's only in his like top five. That's in my top ten. Oh, okay. It, it might be in my top five. I it, don't know. it might not be number one, though, so he still has that to pull. <laughs> there you go. Um, I, I remember reading a tweet that you published a little while ago. Wow, that's something I never hear. <laughs> well, it struck me. I, I don't remember if it was part of a series of things that you had been talking about, but you you've been published in a few newspapers a few magazines mm-hmm. uh and you you said something about wanting to be in gq wanting to write something oh bit. yeah i think my tweet was uh sometimes you just got to say fuck it and pitch gq so so it, it, did you in fact pitch GQ? yeah i pitched gq british gq okay actually. and uh i heard uh, amazingly i heard back from the editor within 24 hours i mean it was a polite no but they didn't have to respond to me. I don't know. I'm, I'm actually very impressed that they got back to me and so quickly. Is there a, I mean, for every story you pitch, what do you, what do you think the, uh, the success rate is? I have a very good success rate. That's good. That's great. Yeah. Is, do you find that rejection from places like that is, I, I imagine you, I mean, your tweet suggested you thought it was a long shot. Oh, it is a long shot. Um, but how do you, how do you deal with the, that sort of rejection especially when you're a freelance writer, like how does, how do you, I, I, uh, I was actually talking about this on my talk. Um, it's very easy for me to already know where I'm going to go next with my pitches. Uh, I, I created a spread, uh, spreadsheet for my pitches. If you can imagine, uh, along the, the most left column is, uh, all the different topics of stories I want to write. And then, Going right from that is my first pick, second pick, third pick, fourth pick, fifth pick, sixth pick, seventh pick, and I've I've even gone up to eighth pick. And I will already have every single in order, excuse me, publication I want to put that in. And I have them color-coded 
all pink if I haven't gotten around to it yet. Uh, it is black if they are still considering it or if I just sent it out. And I'll put the date there so that I know when to touch base with them. Red when they reject it. And then I'll just move along the columns until I find someone who assigns it to me. And then it turns green. <laughs> and I... Uh, why I did this was to stay organized because I, as a freelancer now, <clears throat> since leaving Avenue in November, uh, I'm my own company. I have to be organized, and uh, I'm only as good as 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 I think as as organized as I am. <clears throat> and so I have found incredible success with this system. Really? Because the you know I'm I, I mean I'm not an amateur throwing out crappy stories. You know, I work, a, I work a pitch for days. I do research, I call people, you know, I put together a story that someone out there wants to publish. It's just a matter of who. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as I get that rejection letter, I grab that pitch, I reshape a few things, I tweak it, make sure I have the name of the publication, the right department, uh, I, I maybe want to research their uh, competition to see if they've done something like it so that I can say how I'm going to do it differently. And that might, that's maybe a 20, 30 minute process. And then I send it again and I'm off. Holy cow. And that's, that's the most efficient model I think a freelance writer can use. But it's always, always moving, always going. Yeah. And it, it, it's not, it's not me. As long as you're like, as long as you're professional and doing the right things, this will work for everyone. Um, and you were asking me what my success rate is. I think I have a, I probably have about an 85% success rate with pitches. There are a few stories that don't get published. Yeah, there's, yeah. But, but maybe not by maybe the first. Maybe five for every 50. Right, maybe not for the first publication you no, choose, no, no. right? I just got something. Um, I just got something that I've been pitching for a year and a half. Holy shit. I just got it assigned. Does it, don't you get tired no. of? No. Okay. <laughs> I don't. You don't. It's part of the fun. Is I like it. Right? Oh yeah, because I know it's going to find a home eventually, unless it's crap. But uh, I know it's going to find a home eventually, and it also uh, forces me to look elsewhere and look at publications I would never consider working for. And the internet allows me to get published in Hong Kong, for example. Can I tell you a really cool story? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, my wife and I decided to go to honeymoon to honeymoon to honeymoon in Beirut. Um, my, my family's from there. I've been there to Lebanon a few times. She'd never been there, and I want to show her the country and sort of see it through her eyes. And uh, the more I thought about it, I thought, oh, this is actually a great travel article. So we were going in July. So in October, I pitched uh, Air Canada's magazine en route. Mm -hmm. By January, I got a rejection. I very quickly moved on to Westworld and very quickly got a rejection. I then moved to the Globe and Mail. I got a rejection. Uh, we're now looking at about May, and the honeymoon's coming up. So I went to LinkedIn. I went to the freelance writers and editors group. And knowing that no one else can write this but me, yeah. uh, this is my story, it's very personal. I wasn't worried that someone's gonna jack it from me, so I, I did a reverse pitch. I put the pitch out there and I said, Come to me if you want it. Within 48 hours, I got an editor from a magazine called Post in Hong Kong. Yeah. It's the Sunday supplement to the South, South China Morning Post. Kind of a swerve magazine um, of, uh, of, of Hong Kong. And they assigned me it. 
and I and so I got to go. I went on my honeymoon. I get to write off my plane tickets because it's work. Oh, that's wicked. Um, I got in with uh, a brand new hotel because, you know, I need a hotel. And, and the readers want to know where the best places to stay are, where the best places to eat are. So, you know, I was able to book my own familiarization trip, which is just a way of planning your article through your experiences. So got like $1,500 worth of accommodations for for almost nothing. Jesus. Uh, and it was, you know, luckily it was a great experience. So I, I was uh, pleased to write about it. And, you know, hotels and restaurants know that if, if it's not good, you're not, you're either going to criticize them or you're not going to write about it. So they know how to deliver as well once you get there. So you gave these places the heads up that you would be writing? Yeah. Something? Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, there's, there's some, some things that you pick up naturally, but, you know, I can't just go into a five-star restaurant uh, without a, you know, without an appointment, um, what do they call it? A reservation. <laughs> <laughs> but more importantly, because it's work related, uh, we have a deal where they're like, they're going to let me try the food. They're going to, this is, now we're talking about travel journalism. Yeah. Yeah. And travel journalism is a funny industry because, um, you, you read these travel writers talk about how great a site was, a hotel, a restaurant was, whatever. The fact is, it's probably not as great as it was for them because they're, they are there to work and these hotels and restaurants know that everything and anything they do can and will be publicized. Yeah. Um, so they go above and beyond. They go way above and beyond. So you hear about these great restaurants and then you go there for yourself and you're like, it's, the service isn't that good. <laughs> You know? It's okay. Well, it's because they put a lot more work into it because you were a writer. When I went to that hotel in Beirut, there were f there were rose petals trailing from our door to our bed. If you think you're going to get that service, <laughs> you, you know, you're fooling yourself. So do you write about something like that just because it was an added touch from them? No. No. Because it, it's, it's not part of the common experience? No, Is that exactly. the idea? That's, that's right. And that's what hotels need to realize. It was very nice of them. And it... And, Truth is, it probably influenced me. I mean, it was a great hotel. I couldn't, it couldn't be better. Um, but it, I mean, it could have influenced me. Yeah. If I had an okay time, but I was like, oh, remember when they brought that heart-shaped cake to my room and a bottle of champagne without me asking, which they did? That was pretty nice of them. I can't be harsh on them. I'm sure they do that for everyone. Everyone. Yeah. Everyone on their honeymoon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, now, you, you were an editor with Avenue up until November. Mm -hmm. And you made, correct, an editor, right? Yeah, yeah, associate editor. Right. You made a decision to, to go as a freelancer, to do your own thing. Yep. What, how did you come to that? Can you share with us how you came to that decision? Yeah, sure. I mean, I was, um, I was doing well as a freelancer. I, I mean, I, I got in this business uh, to write, not to edit. I started editing, and I realized how much I enjoyed editing a magazine. It was a great time. Um, but after four and a half years, I started to miss writing. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not like I wasn't writing at Avenue. I just wasn't writing that much. And I, I wasn't, there was only so much terrain I can explore. So I started to freelance more. I started doing really well there. But at the end of the day, I only had so much juice left in me. And I can pour it in one cup, which was Avenue. Or I can pour it into another cup, which was this... Uh, sort of untapped uh, land of freelance writing. I didn't even know what my potential was there. And it was a very hard decision. Hardest one uh, I've, I've had to, hardest decision I've had to make in my young career. But 
I decided that I'd go find out what happens when you when you're a freelance writer, and uh, it's been the it's been the best decision I've made. Yeah, absolutely. Though I do miss certain things. I really do. I I miss being able to leave work at work sometimes. Yeah. Now, uh, in I suppose the digital age, we've used that word a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, it it's probably much easier to uh, to be a freelance That's, that journalist because you have instantaneous access to publications around the world to yeah. their editors totally um if well yeah that's basically i mean well if i was a freelance writer it's a mixed bag i'll, I'll get to why it's a mixed bag in a second okay. but if i was a freelance writer in the 1980s i would be limited to what i can find at my local newsstand only because mm-hmm. that's all i would know um, I would not be able to write for a magazine like Post in Hong Kong or uh, Kelly Matt, which is something I recently uh, contributed to, which is in uh, London, I believe. Um, these things wouldn't happen if the, the door to the publishing world wasn't thrust open by the internet. Now, of course, it's posed a lot of challenges too, proprietary challenges. Um, you know, I, uh, I've been plagiarized once that I know of, Really? Yeah, I mean, it, it was kind of, uh, it was very blatant plagiarism. I, I wrote a story about cats for the Globe and Mail. Yeah. And then a animal, a website about animals uh, picked up my sidebar from there and then published it themselves. And I, I found it uh, very quickly. Um, and uh, you, were, you were actively searching for some kind of plagiarism? I was, I was searching to see. It was my first time in the Globe, and I was really excited about it, and the story got a lot of pickup. So I wanted to see uh, if there was anyone quoting from it or if, if it was you know, being aggregated and somehow. And it was, but it was also being plagiarized. Right. So I just sent them an email, and uh, they fixed it. So it was all good. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's obviously challenges there. The biggest one, though, is that... Uh, publishers want more for your stories um, for less. It used to be that, you know, it used to be you, you licensed a story to a publisher for 90 days. Mm-hmm. They had the exclusive rights, first, you know, first publishing rights. After 90 days, you can resell that story to whomever and wherever you wanted. Um, and there were people who were able to resell a story in the, in the 80s a couple of times can't do that anymore because the web publishes it forever yeah. and I don't want a story that's still available even if it was published on paper three years ago it's still online so why would I want your story again so that 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 has posed some challenges so it's gotta all be original material mostly yeah. every once in a while I can republish something but it is very 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 rare have those freelancer agreements changed very much then do they still have those kinds of you know it's ours for 90 days clauses or they do but it's such but they just also, haven't changed them. they no, no no it's it's there but then there's also the uh the universal rights clause you know that we can use it in ways that haven't even they have to put this they haven't even been invented yet we could publish your story on myspace we could we could project your story onto uh-huh. the moon yeah, Holy absolutely. Shit. I feel like that's worth a couple they, million. I mean, they do this because they have to protect themselves, right? Because yeah. there are, you can, you can say we're only going to publish it uh, on our website, but then tablets came along. And it's like, oh crap, that wasn't, that's not our website. Technically the app yeah. is not the website. Yeah, I exactly. guess not. So then, so now contracts have this, 
there, I should say there are still great magazines like um, Reader's Digest that do not, that protect your material uh, in paper. And if they want to publish it online, they buy those rights as well. Oh, wow. And I think they, Reader's Digest is such a great advocate for writers. And they, um, I think they also, I might be wrong, but I think they also send you a check every once in a while for however long it's been published on their website. But that's the only place I've heard of doing wow. this. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. This, is, uh, this is one of those episodes where this conversation could go for another three hours. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. It but, uh, but I'm thinking that we're, we're coming up on that special time where Adam gets to do his favorite part of the show. You mean the Fast 15? The very thing. That is what I was referring to. (laughs) (laughs) Are you familiar with the Fast 15, Omar? A little bit. Okay, so at the end, near the end of the show, well, basically, we're, we're, we're at the end. We were approaching the end. We're in the final stretch yeah. Uh, this is where... It's the fifth the, yard line, you know. This is where the, the runner would uh, push themselves to the limit to the point where their legs almost give out. Yeah. Splashing Gatorade on themselves. You can see the top of Everest from here. Does this end with me peeing myself? Do you still really have to go to the bathroom? <laughs> no, no. It might. Stranger things have happened. All right, I'm going to sit up. I've been, your body I've, just I've literally had my, shuts down. For those who are not here, I've had my uh, bare feet on this table. I've been lounging like Hugh Hefner all along. But I'm going to sit up for this because uh, it's about to get serious, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, so the Fast 15 is a, a segment where we ask uh, every one of our guests the same first 13 questions. And then we tailor two wildcard questions at the end. Uh, based on what we know or what little we know about our guests. Uh, and it's typically rapid fire, though I think... Um, rapid is a uh, in quotations. I, I think that the title of the Fast 15 has an asterisk next to it, because <laughs> sometimes people slow down trying we to We ask the questions quickly. Yeah, that's right. That's but the right. answers don't necessarily come very quickly. So you look ready. I've never been more ready in my life. <laughs> okay, here we go. The Fast 15 with... Edmonton Public Library, writer-in-residence, Omar Mualam. Number one, your favorite food. My favorite food is probably Ethiopian food. Favorite color? Blue. Mac, PC, or Linux? Mac. What? (laughs) Mac. Yeah. Obviously. Okay. Dogs or cats? Come on, cats. I wrote a book about cats. (laughs) Coffee, Coffee or tea? Coffee. Favorite holiday? Uh, favorite holiday is probably Christmas. I, I just started celebrating Christmas four years ago, so I, it, it's still great to me. I'm four, I'm four in Christmas years, so it's, it's really thrilling for that's, me. That's an important distinction. Yes. It's like yeah. dog years. Yeah, it is. Uh, that's great. F- your favorite sport? Uh, I don't think I have a favorite sport, but I got to think of something. Um, is Settlers of Catan a sport yet? Yes, it is. Done. Scott, of Scott looks skeptical, but uh, do they show it on TSN? If there was, if the lockout was still going on, they, they would. Act, yes, that's, fair. That that's true. true. So, so if, if it has to be something on TSN, then I'm going to say the spelling bee. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the problem. This next question presents a problem f- for your previous answer. Because it's a board game. No, it's your favorite pastime. Oh, <laughs> so no, I mean, not, my, not settlers of Catan. My favorite pastime. Uh, what do I do when I'm, I guess I, I love to read magazines when I have, when I have time to kill. Right on. All right. What about your favorite music right now? 
Still listening to that Kendrick Lamar album. So good. Oh, I'm not familiar with that. Kendrick Lamar, Good Kid, Mad City, best rap album put out in a very long time. Definitely the best one of the year. So good. Download it legitimately, people. Yes. Uh, <laughs> your favorite movie right now. Uh, my favorite movie right now. Can I just tell you my favorite movie of all time? Yeah, that'd be Absolutely. great. Probably A Clockwork Orange. I've never seen the movie. I've really? read the book. Unbelievable. Can I tell you a quick story? About Please it? do. It was my favorite movie when I was, since I was like 15. And I brought it to a basketball tournament that we were like sleeping over for. And I convinced these two seventh graders to watch it. And uh, one of the supervisors who happened to be one of his dads walked in during like a really horrible scene. And uh, I got kicked off the basketball team for it. So Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. You can't play basketball because of a clockwork because orange. Because of a clockwork orange. And it's yeah. a lifetime ban. It's a lifetime ban. I still yeah. can't. Yeah. You cannot. You're not allowed can't. to dribble a no. ball. As yeah. soon as I dribble it, my old coach just <laughs> thrusts himself forward and swats it out of my hand. <laughs> and he says, well, well, well. <laughs> okay. Number 11. Your favorite video game. My favorite video game is Tetris. Good answer. What is, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? Um, God, I don't know what my favorite superpower would be. I think, I think it would be the ability to, to speak articulately all the time. All the time. That's practical. That is one of the most practical superpowers we've heard. Omar, I and believe it, you possess this power. I'm just, I'm on right now because I was at a seminar talking for two and a half yeah, hours before. You're killing it. So this is, so this is just momentum, really. This is still momentum. <laughs> this is inertia. I wish I could have this all the time. It, I, yeah, it doesn't happen. It's starting to, see, it's, I'm starting to unravel. Okay, well, we'll, we'll wrap this up really quick. <laughs> uh, the last of the standard questions, Star Trek or Star Wars? Uh... Mostly neither, but I did enjoy the last Star Wars movie. Uh, is Battlestar Galactica an option? It is now. All right, Battlestar Galactica, it is. The reimagined series? Oh, of course. <laughs> Not of the course. original racist no. series? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're on to our wild card questions. Okay. Now, I know for a fact that you grew up in a small town in Alberta. That's correct. Can you share with us one of your favorite small town memories? Favorite small town memories? I grew up in a town called High Prairie. We were one of the few Arab families there. There was an American family that lived there. And after 9-11, they put up an American flag on top of their building. Uh, I, was a, I was an asshole teen. I was a terrible 17-year-old. And a year after 9-11, I was making some prank phone calls on a cell phone we just called. Uh, we were, me and my friends were using. And uh, we were just trying to one-up each other. And we were dialing random numbers. And in this small town, so small, sometimes you dial a random number and you get someone you know. I got the voicemail for their business. Ooh. And I started just rambling and about their flag. And then I ended up saying, if you don't take it down, I'll burn it down. Oh, shit. In that moment, I forgot that I was an Arab Canadian <laughs> in a Muslim household. <laughs> it went terribly, went terribly after that. Police got involved. 
Friends were accused. Oh my god! I called people racist because they accused me of something I did. <laughs> oh no! Went on How for dare months. you accuse me for this thing that I actually that I, did? That I did, but I'm not telling you I did. My parents were very upset at at each other because they took sides. One believed me, one didn't. All because I dialed a random number that ended up, and this could only happen in a small town where there's only four digits. It's only four distinct digits. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Jeez. Thank and, you. Oh, that's not the only reason it happened. It happened because I was an asshole. <laughs> I was a terrible, terrible teen. Insensitive. Yeah. Just terrible person. So. But it's all sorted out now. Oh, it's cool. Okay. I, I'm a Yankee. I'm a, I'm a Yankophile now. <laughs> I truly, I go to the States several times a year just for pleasure. I've been to Texas, California. D.C., Portland, love it. I just love that country. Right on. Yeah. Uh, so along similar lines, we talked about small town memory. S- uh, s- this memory maybe not so fond. What about your favorite Edmonton memory? You've been here for a few years. Yeah, my favorite Edmonton memory is um, I've been here since 2006. And uh, Edmonton was very, very nice to me, very, very good to me, very quickly. And I felt like I fit in except for when people talked about Purple City. Uh, for those who, who aren't aware of Purple City, if you're not aware, it means that you didn't grow up here. Um, Purple City is when you stare at the floodlights at the ledge grounds for so long that it's usually done under the influence that everything around you turns purple. Everyone I met had done this, and it's been done for generations, for you know maybe even 40 years. Um, and I just couldn't relate, and I didn't get it. And if I was ever like, you know, what's I don't get it, people just kind of looked me, looked at me like I was a foreigner. <laughs> so a few Christmases or holiday seasons ago, uh, my wife, then at the time girlfriend, took me down to the ledge for a romantic walk, and we stopped to do Purple City. And I really felt like my passport as an Edmontonian had been stamped in that moment. <laughs> when I stared at the floodlights, and I looked up and by golly, everything was purple. <laughs> That's awesome. Right on. Well, those are our Fast 15 questions. Thank you very much, Omar, gentlemen. it was a pleasure. It Indeed. was a pleasure. From this side, over here. Even, even with your shoes off and your feet up, it was... And my armpit's wet. That's okay. Well, mine are too. Yeah. Scott, how are you? Are you dry? I'm, I'm pretty dry. <laughs> doing okay. Fuck you, man. <laughs> I'm wearing secret. Oh. <laughs> Strong enough for a man. Made for Scotsy Bourgeois. That's right. Right on. Well, uh, you know what? We're going to have you on again because I feel like we only scratched the surface. But All it was, right. It was terrific. Great. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thank you. You've been listening to The Unknown Studio, Episode 80. Our guest, Omar Mualam. Pre-production by Adam Rosenhart. Post-production by Scott C. Bourgeois. The Unknown Studio is a proud member of the League of Extraordinary Media. You can visit us on the web at theunknownstudio.ca. Thanks for listening.
<clears throat> is there a bathroom break in the middle of this? <laughs> if you need there to okay, be one. Great. Do you need a bathroom break right now? I do, but I don't want to get up. Okay. You just tell us when you need a bathroom break. Is that stupid? Should I go use it right now? You can yeah, go use it right yeah, now. Yeah, you guys want me to. You don't, you don't want to be like, and he's sensing it. we're back. He, he's sensing it. We, uh, we edit the shit out of this thing. Oh, sure. That's nice to say. Yes. <laughs> uh.